Welcome back, everybody, to another one in our series of conversations between Caleb Morpin and Hapal Bra. I'm Jyoti Bra. Uh, today, at a request from one of our members, we are going to be talking about the state. Now, the foundational Marxist work on the state was, of course, done by Friedrich Engels uh, in his fantastic work, The Origin of the Family, Private Property and the State, which I advise everybody to read if you haven't already. And if you have, have read it, go and read it again. It's brilliant. There's so much in there for us to understand. But essentially, the Marxist understanding of the state is that, and I don't think it starts with Marxists, but the Marxists made it very clear that um, the state is something which arises with the advent of the split of society into classes. And it's a mechanism by which to contain the class war, which otherwise would be open all the time and make sort of normal life impossible, and also to maintain the rule of a minority exploiting class. Or up until the advent of socialism, its job is to maintain the rule of a minority exploiting class. So it's to maintain the rule of a certain class over society and to stop class hostilities kind of breaking into, into open confrontation on a kind of daily basis. That's basically how the Marxists understand what the state is. Um, and Engels and then Lenin, in his groundbreaking work, which he wrote in 1917, um, just months before the October Revolution, uh, the state and revolution, they talked about special bodies of armed men, that the state arrogates to itself the monopoly of violence in order to control the general population. So I wondered if we could sort of start from there, Hapal, really, and um, get your take on what forms that takes in today's modern capitalist imperialist world. Well, you stated the Marxist position. And the, the only thing I would contradict you on is the foundational work is not laid by Engels in his Origin of the Family, which was written almost toward the end of his life. They laid the foundation for it much earlier, and it's got to be seen in the Communist Manifesto. It's got to be seen in, in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon by, by Marx and cr critique of the Gotha program by, by, by Marx. It's, it's, it's laid there. But there are a number of works. Engels' housing question, which was written much, much, much earlier. But that's just minor. Uh, that's, that's, that's not important. I, I think the base of could be summed up if I can just, I don't normally like reading because I don't read very well. Marx says somewhere, and now to myself, no credit is due to me for discovering the existence of classes in modern society, nor yet the struggle between them. Long before me, bourgeois historians had described the historical development of this struggle of classes and bourgeois economists, the economic anatomy of classes. What I did that was new was to prove, number one, that existence of class, classes is only bound up with particular historical phases in the development of production. Secondly, that the class struggle necessarily leads to the dictatorship of the proletariat. And thirdly, that this dictatorship itself only constitutes a transition to the ab abolition of all classes and to a classless society. Now, <laughs> in, in my view, that brilliantly sums up the Marxist teaching on the state, and we can pick up each of these areas and discuss and make our observ observations on what, what we have, have learned 
So basically, wherever there is a class, there is a state, no matter how democratic or how dictatorial, it simply is a reflection of the fact that the society has become divided into classes whose interests cannot be reconciled. And the state, state comes into existence, as Jyoti, you pointed out, to moderate this class struggle, that the society does not consume itself in daily struggles, uh, and, and the state is there to do that. Of course, its function is to make sure that the exploiting minority continues in its happy state of existence and the exploited majority are put in their place. And that's why Marx and Engels everywhere reproach their comrades in the German Social Democratic Party when they come in their various pro, pro programs and talk nonsense about the kind of state they want, you know, like a free free people's people's state or a free free state. And Marx and Engels were of the opinion once it becomes possible to speak of freedom, the state as such ceases to exist. And also grammatically, as you would expect Engels with his typical mischievousness, says a free state, grammatically speaking, means the most dictatorial state it can do, whatever it, it, it likes to. It says whatever the reasons, you know, political reasons in Germany for using these expressions because of the anti-socialist laws through which the German Social Democratic Party first had been outlawed, then it became legal and it didn't want to go back to the old anti-socialist laws. So it was using all kinds of phrases. And Engels said, instead of trying to use wrong formulations, it was much better not to use the word state, but to use the word community. And Lenin says, of course, in Germany, you could do that because the word community had two meanings and one of them could be used for the state. But in Russian, there was no such word. So he, he thought we might as well use the French word commune, although that too it has had its own, own weak weaknesses and, and drawbacks. So the German social democrats initially were using uh, these expressions, a free people's state and a free state to avoid being caught by the anti-socialist anti, anti laws. But it's not good for the education of the proletariat that they're given wrong formulations. It might sound a bit esoteric, you know, when you're trying to find out extra two cents for every hour of work you work, you know, and you're involved in wage struggle, somebody's trying to teach you about the state. But if the proletariat wants to be the ruling class, rather than always being the ruling class in waiting, it's got to learn what exactly is their function, what, how are they to, to organize, and what is their struggle direct, directed against. I, I'll let you speak and then I'll come back. Caleb. Well, it's interesting because in the United States, there is a particularly cultural, um, and it's just everywhere. I mean, it's, it's primarily articulated by people on the right or the libertarian current, but it's all over the left as well. This belief that the state is this entity in and of itself, that it doesn't reflect class 
antagonisms or class relations, um, and that it is simply an entity in and of itself that should be fought against. Um, and that, you know, that that's, you know, there's a lot of people on the left who call themselves anarchists. Uh, that's very widespread. But uh, among, you know, uh, libertarians, conservatives, this is all over U.S. culture, this idea that the state is this entity that is out of control, that is coming for our rights, and uh, you know, and and it is just a threat to everyone, and it's just it's just this thing that exists, government and government overreach, and uh, this is very widespread, and um, it's frustrating. It's rather frustrating to deal with because uh, people they just don't want to see the state as a reflection of any wider forces. They want to see the state as kind of just existing in the abstract. And um, uh, I'd say it's cultural. I mean, it's really built into the United States from the time where children were told that America is really great because of all of our freedoms. Uh, we're taught about civil liberties uh, and that this is kind of baked into the culture. And then it comes with the anti-communism as well, because we're taught that the difference between communist countries and capitalist countries is that in communist countries, the state is everywhere. The state runs everything, whereas in capitalist countries, the state is a little bit further out. And of course, that's not the difference at all, right? I mean, it's it's a matter of who controls the state and what functions the state carries out, et cetera. But, but the way we're presented with it is that uh, that it's simply a matter of communism is is the state is everywhere and in, in capitalism, the state is not everywhere. So uh, this is probably something that I think is is very important to discuss in in light of you know all of this because uh in the united states it's very confusing definitely i mean it's interesting the the, the concept you bring up there caleb as the state and we have it about you know without any class context or, or background and we have this it, this is done with certain um certain things which are presented to us as abstract concepts as if they don't have a class content where of course without understanding that they have class content, they make no sense to you. So that goes for um, the law, right? Which again is often presented to us as like it just came down from heaven, you know, wasn't written by a certain class in a, in a specific, you know, context of balance of class forces, etc. Uh, democracy is another one, you know, nobody ever asks you democracy for whom, on, on behalf of which class, right? And these questions are, are totally bound up with the state, bound up with which class is in power, what are the relationships between of class forces, you know, in, in a particular society at any particular time? And you also bring up a question, this question of the size of the state, I think is something really interesting because Lenin pointed out, in fact, that um, World War One, you know, which was the the kind of admission that capitalism had got to the to the point where it could no longer expand except at the expense of somebody else. Monopolies had become so huge, they were dominating the national life and fighting with each other internationally. And um, he linked this era of monopoly with the vast growth of the state machinery, right? And the, the dominance of the state in every sphere of people's lives, the dominance of monopolies in every sphere of people's lives. And it's interesting to me to, 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 to talk about that and if we have time later also to compare that to the size a state needs to be in a socialist country where it's governing on behalf of the majority of the people. And therefore, the, the proportion of the population it needs to suppress is much, much smaller, right? In fact, is infinitesimal in comparison to the proportion of population that the imperialist ruling class is trying to control. So, Hapal, I don't know if you want to talk about one of the aspects of those that have been brought up there. 
Well, it's re re really la laughable when they say our states are democratic and they don't go into everybody's life. When actually you cannot have a conversation without being listened to by the intelligence services and they're spying on everybody, they're spying on each other. Nobody trusts any, 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 anyone. This kind of intrusiveness was never, never characteristic of the socialist states, although they were portrayed as being basically police states where, where everybody interfered in your life. Most of the, 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 the work was done for improving people's lives, you know, bringing social security, bringing education, bringing health, bringing all the benefits, uh, hospitals, etc., that 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 people need need to live a, live live a, live a decent life, uh, and and as you rightly pointed out, when there is a minority to be oppressed, you don't need such an expensive and large state machine. If the state was extremely powerful in the socialist countries that have existed in our lifetime so far, it is not because of the internal situation. It is because of the external environment of imperialism. They had to defend themselves on a daily basis against the encroachments of imperialism through its agents, through its subversion, and through, of course, ultimately its armed aggression of which the Second World War is a perfectly good example. What sacrifices the Soviet people had to make to not only save themselves, but the whole of humanity from the specter of being ruled by Nazi Germany for the next th th thousand years. Instead of being grateful, people are being condemned because they actually def defended us. And now the, the narrative for the, since the collapse of the Soviet Union has been to compare Nazi Germany with Soviet socialism, to compare Hitler, Hitler with Stalin. Nothing could be further from the truth. There are thousands of books written by mercenaries who are paid to write rubbish. They probably know they're writing rubbish. They probably know it's a falsehood, but it's a good way of making money. Any one of us could do, could, could do that. If we started writing that suddenly overnight, you'd be appearing on all the mainstream medias and, you know, informing, in quotation words, everybody, what a horrible thing, thing uh, communism is. The, the very idea of a state under the conditions of socialism being more oppressive than a state under the conditions of capitalism just does not stand up to scrutiny. Where you have a majority of people to be suppressed, you need a very expensive and wide-ranging state infrastructure in order to intrude into people's lives and to keep 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 them in, in, in their proper place. So socialism, as soon as the socialist revolution takes place, the state that comes there to take the place of the old state is what we call the dictatorship of the proletariat. Now, this is a blood-curdling expression. Everybody says, we don't want to be ruled by a dictatorship. But it's not that. Every single state, by definition, is a dictatorship of one class or another. Because the whole function of the state is to suppress one class on behalf of another one. So in the capitalist countries, it's a state that actually represents the interests of the minority and suppresses the majority. In a socialist state, is the other other way other way around. That's what so socialism for.
the dictatorship of the and, and you know we should use these expressions sometimes we don't because we also want to be popular and the moment we want to be popular is already stepping on the slippery slope of opportunism and before you know you end up in the kautskyite positions of either ignoring the topic or trying not to understand the customs of the country or simply dis distorting it we should use the dictatorship of the proletariat as often as the opportunity arises not because it's a ritual we must get the proletariat used to that's what we're fighting wouldn't it be wonderful to have our class the proletariat having this dictatorship in its hands and suppressing the ex the exploiters instead of the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie which is a dictatorship of a minority over the majority so there's a fight between two dictatorships the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie as against the dictatorship of the proletariat and that's what we're struggling for and we should not shy shy away from it we you got to use these expressions funnily enough even in countries where not everybody understands english not everybody understands latin these terms are used punjabi peasants use the word proletari you know bourgeois and they use the dictatorship of the, of the of the proletariat and we should popularize these terms we've got to get the working class actually to use these terms so they know exactly what it is instead of saying oh no no we are not dictatorship we are demo democrats because democracy also will come to it later on is a state even the most democratic state is a state and if communism is aiming eventually going through the harsh age of communism to get rid of the state it's also trying to get rid of democracy now this horrifies people so we are going to get democracy Dem getting rid of democracy does not mean getting rid of representative institutions it means getting rid of of a class state that 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 is, that, that is there so if we are fighting for communism and we are communists and marx and engels throughout their lives hardly ever use the word socialist they use the word communist to describe what we call socialist they use the lower phase of communism and to describe the higher phase is communism and we use that expression regularly consistently without any 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 shame on our part we use this expression to actually say that's what we are aiming for i think it was one of engels's letters somewhere he said marx and and, and i that's engels always used the word communist we did not use the word so socialist to distinguish ourselves uh, from those with whose program we did not agree and we wanted to say what what we were aiming for he said the paradoxical thing is that we had a perf had a perfect name for the party the communist party but we didn't have a proper communist party now at that time germany had a proper communist party but it was called the social democratic party the name is wrong the party is, is right but engel said never never mind it will pass master because history moves on and the name gets gets stuck we can put up with that name as long as we understand we are communists and what our final aim is lovely caleb 
Well, um, one thing that comes to mind as you're describing all of this uh, is how much of the activity of the state uh, is really focused on just simply maintaining the needs of capital and operating. I mean, we we think of the state in terms of, you know, the courts, uh, people being jailed, uh, police. But there's a whole lot of what the, you know, the so-called law does that simply deals with you know, relegating and managing disputes among the bourgeoisie when it comes to property. You know, I mean, if you think about the amount of money and court proceedings that are simply, you know, one corporation arguing about it owns the, the copyright to this or it or it has the right to, to that. Um, also, there's many instances where the market uh, in order to just function, I mean, capitalism is such a highly irrational system, uh, you know, that, you know, I mean, uh, antitrust legislation, the breaking up of monopolies. These are things that are necessary to maintain just just to keep the economy moving to some degree or other. You have to have the state step in and break apart monopolies. You have to have the state uh, you have to have the state regulate things. I used to work in the insurance industry. And I mean, the amount of regulations there are just to make sure uh, that that uh, that that insurance and the sale of insurance continues in a way that doesn't lead to an absolute monopoly. Uh, it's quite massive. I mean, the amount of laws and regulation that is there just to facilitate insurance uh, of, of all kinds of different kinds. And uh, it's interesting to think about that. I mean, the state really was created by capital to serve capital to serve their ends. And, and, you know, it's not like, uh, again, this kind of libertarian narrative that we have where the state is this end unto itself that's created by selfish bureaucrats to take away everyone's rights and stop people from working hard and getting rich. This just doesn't match the reality of the state. I mean, the capitalists created the state to serve their own ends. Absolutely. And you bring me back to the, the original request for this show from somebody who was talking about that definition of the state as consisting of special bodies of armed men and what exactly that means and how do we see that manifested in today's society. And I remember, I think, someone tell me if I'm wrong about this, I think it was Lenin who said that a police state, his definition, is one where police officers are paid more than teachers. Hmm. That, that, is, that is correct. Yeah. But, 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 but you see, when we have the dictatorship of the proletariat, we would still need special bodies of armed men, although they would be of a different type. Lenin was envisaging an armed militia where the workers will have the arms and they'll be able, able to de deal with it. In reality, things didn't turn out quite like that because of the international complications and all the rest of it. But all the same, uh, as long as there is a state, some form of force is definitely necessary and the proletarian state would need it just as much, but only in the interest, in, in, interest of, the, of the majority. And precisely for that reason, it won't be necessary for it to build so many jails to stuff them with lot, lots and lot, lots of people. You constantly told of the, of the, of the, of the, of the gulag, um, which was really an acronym from the Soviet and prison administra administra administration, if, if, if you like. But if you really want to know the gulag, go to the, the, the land of the free, go to United States of America, where the incarceration as a proportion of the, to the general population 
is far higher than in any other 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 country and what's more is the poorest people who find themselves in jail and among the poorest it's the blacks who who, who represent a disproportionate section of the of the prison population and of course it's in the interest of capital to have that system going because there's a lot of money to be made people talk of the 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 military industrial complex i think it should be called military industrial and prison com, com, complex they they're all re, re, related related to 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 each to each other uh, so um, you talked a little bit there, Hapal, about the um, the prisons as an arm of the state and state power. And, of course, um, there's an aspect of the state, isn't there, which is about maintaining a monopoly on violence and a monopoly on holding arms. And there's a contradiction in the USA uh, with that particular aim because of the Second Amendment guaranteeing to the people the right to bear arms. <laughs> Oh, sorry, my dog just went crazy. This was um, this was a revolutionary demand at the time of the War of Independence against the British, right? Against the British. So by the by the uh, settlers in America who wanted independence from British rule. Uh, in that revolution, they said to we have the right. We ordinary people have the right to bear arms, and they enshrined it in their constitution. And now it's become a source of great tension in the USA, and people who defend that right are presented as if they're kind of lunatics with AK-47s who want to just run around shooting people. And on the other hand, you know, those who oppose that right are seen by the ones who defend it as, you know, coming for my freedoms. But, you know, there is a contradiction, isn't there, in a state like America um, between the desire of the ruling class to maintain the monopoly of violence and this enshrined right that's part of the kind of popular mythology of America, that we have the right to bear arms. Caleb, well, I don't know what your thoughts about on that. Well, there's a couple different layers to it. I mean, we have to admit that to some degree, you know, the the right to bear arms, uh, it did begin as a revolutionary demand, uh, you know, on the part of the population uh, against against Britain. That was part of the American Revolution. Um, but it, it also took on a right wing settler connotation. Right. And we can't deny that, that it was, you know, you had, you know, the, the settler goes out on, on the land and he has his own gun, you know, to protect himself from the indigenous people and a man's house is his castle. And, uh, you know, there, there was a right wing aspect to it. And that's still a very big part of it. But at the same time, in the United States, in the labor movement, uh, the right to bear arms has been a very important thing because, you know, I mean, at the time when, you know, the companies uh, are hiring, you know, thugs to beat back uh, workers who are on strike, the question was, do we ask the government to protect striking workers, which they won't do, or do we maintain the right of workers to protect their own picket lines with arms? And in West Virginia, uh, you know, among coal miners historically, uh, and in other other parts of the country among labor activists uh, in the 1930s and 20s, there was armed militias of the workers to protect their picket lines, to protect their labor unions, to engage in armed self-defense. Um, and the Social Democrats were saying, well, you can't do that. Uh, and it was communists who said, well, no, we should do that. We shouldn't be asking the capitalist state to protect our picket lines. Uh, if we have the right to, to 
carry firearms then and protect ourselves and defend ourselves in the context of labor struggles, we should do so. Um, and then later in the 1960s and 70s uh, that, you know, with the Black Panthers, uh, you know, as you know, the civil rights organization was going on and black activists were being killed. Um, it also became, you know, black activists saying, now, do we ask the government to protect civil rights activists or do we uh, recognize that we have the right to bear arms and take up firearms on our own? Now, this all takes a weird turn because it's, again, the context of these debates, you know, again, everything is context because now we have this problem of mass shootings in the United States, which is people that have mental illness. And often, you know, it's young white men who part of their mental illness does involve white supremacism or whatever, but they will then show up at their their school or their, you know, university or a place of business, and they will just kill everyone randomly. I mean, they'll target people of all races, all nationalities. They'll commit a mass shooting as, a, as an expression of their alienation and insanity, and they'll kill lots of people. And there's many people who look at incident after incident like this, and they say, well, we need to clearly just ban firearms, um, you know, because, you know, we can't have incidents like this happening. Um, but then there's people that say, OK, so if we take away the right to bear arms, uh, you know, what about labor struggles? What about, you know, the struggle of people against racism? And and do we want to give the state a monopoly on armed force? Right. And that assumes we, we assume that the bourgeois state uh, wants to protect us all. And if they have a monopoly on owning the firearms, they'll protect us all. And I think we can see that that's not the case. And in some cases, you can see um, that in, you know, in these school shootings, uh, the armed police that are there are not protecting the students in the school. Um, there's been many instances of that, um, you know, or or worse, you know, while, the, you know, they, they, they've evacuated the building uh, and the shooter is in the building uh, and the state, rather than going in and stopping the shooter, the state is actually preventing people from going in and stopping the shooter and, and holding back, you know, parents and community members and leaving the children in the school to die. Right. And we've seen instances of this uh, many times. So, you know, that sparks a lot of debate. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the bourgeois state serves its own ends. It doesn't serve the people. And I think that's that's the issue that needs to be remembered. And I don't feel like you can be a Marxist and call for gun control. I don't think you can be a Marxist and call for the, the U.S. Uh, bourgeois state to disarm people. Um, now, that said, I don't think we should, you know, dismiss the concerns of people who are worried about the safety of their children and have these issues. And I don't think we should, we should act like, you know, the gun fetish that you see widespread in U.S. society is not necessarily coming from a good place, I would say either. It is tied up with racism and settler culture, et cetera. So it's complicated. It's a very complex issue, but that's how I see it as someone organizing in the United States. I think you have to, you can't call for gun control. Let me put it that way. I don't know if opposing it is necessarily strategic, but you can't call for it. It's not something revolutionaries can support. I I I, th I think that's got to be right. You can't call for gun gun control, for the simple reason: guns don't shoot themselves. Somebody's got to pull the trigger. It's not the guns that are causing that problem. It's the American capitalist society, which has reached such a abnormal stage of degeneration that people take it out on themselves. Now there's a there's the uh, National Rifle Association which is a very powerful lo lobby in America, which opposes gun control. And none of, and, and, and the American uh, parla parliament, that is the Senate and the House of Representatives are powerless to stop it because they have got such an influence through their lobbyists and, and money to donate um, to people who have 
trying to become senators or or or, or members of the of the house of house of representatives so this will not happen because the violence that takes place doesn't really touch the rich it touches the poor people poor people are shooting each other so what does it matter to american imperialism if poor, poor people are killing themselves it saves them the job of having to kill them so they do it themselves the moment the american people start using the right to bear arms start using making use of the second amendment and actually use that to fight against their oppressors the gun lobby will be sidelined and the law banning the the, the bearing of arms would be passed literally over, over, overnight overnight not every country with a higher density of weapons does what america does america does what it does it's culturally attuned to it it's a country based on a successful and gigantic experiment in genocide and on on slavery and waging wars everywhere against other people during the existence of the american republic for two and a quarter centuries there, there cannot be more than 10 or 12 years when america was not fighting wars against other people suppressing them in latin america and further apart further afield from philippines to hawaii to guam to to, to vietnam to korea to iraq wherever you 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 can think of there are 800 american military, military bases switzerland and japan i'm told i need to check up these figures have the same higher density of of weapons available to the public as the american public but they don't have the same shooting uh, environment they don't go around every now and then there's lunatics everywhere that's you know and again lunacy itself if there's a higher rate of lunacy in america it's actually the symptom of reflective of the degeneration of american capitalism to to the point where 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 the the the, the these these things hap, ha, happen i mean america i mean the state of california has more more shrinks than the rest of the world put together well if there wasn't a demand there wouldn't be such a supply you know americans absolutely the, the shrinks make a huge lot of money you know, if you're thinking of a new career, become a shrink in America. People come, sit on your couch, pay you 10, 200 quid for listening to your nonsense, and you say, well, they come back next, 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 next week, right? Uh, I mean, there, there was a lovely book, I can't remember its title now, written in Britain, Britain on the Couch, because capitalism produces mental illness. So don't regard men mentally people, sick people as nutters, they are, but they are reflective of the nutry of imperialism of monopoly capitalism at its stage of highest de development where it's degenerate where it's parasitic where it's moribund it's time it was put an end to if you want to put an end to violence people are involved in every day against each other let alone the violence of the state against people you've got to get rid of this system absolutely right couldn't put it better myself and wouldn't try. Um, could we come back to a point you made earlier, Hapal, about the prison industrial military complex or the military industrial prison complex? And you talk about the profits to be made in a privatized prison industry. You start to have a, an incentive sort of of its own for locking people up. 
that's just to do with, you know, the more people you lock up, the more money you make. But there's something else going on as well, isn't there? What, to, what does it benefit the imperialists to be locking so many people up? And not just the ones who make money directly out of it, but the, the system in general. I don't know, C Caleb, if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I think that the prison industrial complex in America is much more of a symptom of the economic breakdown of capitalism, right? I mean, you're going to have an oppressive state in a capitalist society, you know, for, for, you know, managing the working class, protecting the private property of the capitalists, et cetera. Um, but mass incarceration as a phenomenon in the United States is largely a response. I mean, it's deindustrialization uh, in the United States. Uh, the amount of you know industrial jobs that were once available are not there anymore. Um, and that it became a way for a lot of capitalists to make a lot of money was uh, incarcerating people. And that the war on drugs, which I, I mean, was it played on the fears, right? So it, it, it's, again, the capitalists, they play both sides of these things. We know that during the 1970s uh, and 1960s, American intelligence did a lot to put drugs all through U.S. society. And they had projects like MK MKUltra, uh, and they were doing a lot to, you know, promote drug culture. Uh, that was very widespread. The media, television, rock and roll music, they were just giving everyone drugs. Drugs were everywhere in U.S. society. Fidel Castro talks about how millions of doses of LSD were purchased by the American intelligence agencies and just, just distributed throughout society. And, and drug culture was being promoted by the imperialists as a way to try and maintain social control because they saw the protests against the Vietnam War rising. They saw the alienation of young people. They saw the civil rights movement and they were trying to control the culture and that that the drug culture that accompanied the new left, which was anti-communist leftism and counterculturalism, that was an attempt to, to try and maintain control uh, on the part of the ruling class. But then in the aftermath, as things started to calm down in the 1970s, then, you know, we had all these people who, you know, become drug addicts. Uh, and many people in their families had a, had a relative who had become addicted to heroin in Vietnam or had, you know, had used uh, some of these hallucinogenic drugs and had a problem. And so people saw the devastating impact of what the imperialists did when they fomented drug culture. And so then the imperialists turned around and had the war on drugs. And that was then they could start, you know, they, they played up people's fears. And I remember this, I was a kid, we had to sit through endless hours of just, you know, this propaganda, you know, a lot of it was true about what drugs do to people, but to make you afraid, um, you know, we were in school told to turn in our parents, you know, if our parents were using drugs, you know, they would burn the, you know, they would burn the, uh, the, you know, something and we would smell like, this is what the smell of marijuana smells like. If you, if you smell this in your home, tell your teacher immediately. So, you know, your parents can be arrested and, you know, they, they just did this whole, um, whole culture. And it was, it was, they had fomented drug culture and then they fomented an anti-drug hysteria that was a little bit, it was pretty nuts and over the top. And it resulted in the rate of incarceration going up. Um, and there was all kinds of all kinds of propaganda. And it was specifically aimed at black people. Black people were the target. It was the fear of black people on the part of the white majority, you know, that, that black people are dangerous. They're using drugs. And that was used to then incarcerate black people at, at, at huge rates. And the rate of incarceration in the United States in the 1990s in particular just went through the roof um, and they were imprisoning people. And it was a way to 
make money. And it was a way for the capitalist state to to maintain control over sections of the population that historically had been quite radical. You know, cities like Detroit and Detroit in the 19 in the 1970s, there had been a, a Maoist communist judge who would quote from the little red book on his on his stand, you know, and the Black Panthers and that, that among the black community, there had been a wave of anti-capitalist and pro-communist sentiments. And the ruling class was very afraid of that section of the population and wanted to maintain control of them. And that, that these industrial centers where many black people People lived uh, had been hotbeds of radicalism, and it was about kind of maintaining control uh, and beating that back. At the same time, also mm -hmm. just because there wasn't employment, uh, you know, there wasn't employment for lots of people, and and incarcerating people. And it started with the black community, but there's, I mean, a lot of low-income white people. I mean, were targeted by this as well, you know. I mean, and you know, the prisons in the United States are full of low-income white people uh, that were caught up in the war on drugs, or you know. And if you look throughout the United States. Uh, you know, drug use has rapidly expanded since the war on drugs. This policy of incarcerating people for using drugs hasn't stopped drug use at all. And in fact, there's far more drug use and far more drug, uh, drug culture, drug organizations, drug manufacturing, trafficking uh, than there was before the war on drugs. And I think it's almost a consensus now among the uh, the American government. Every section of politics admits that the war on drugs was a complete failure. The question is, what do we do about it? Now we're seeing states again. Now they turn around. Now marijuana is being legalized in most parts of the United States. They're starting to legalize marijuana. And the marijuana that's out there now is much more potent than any of the marijuana that was around before. You know, the people used to grow in their backyard or whatever. Now the marijuana that's being mass distributed is is much more potent. And they're turning around and now we're they're promoting drug use again. And they're, you know, as psychiatric treatment. Now they're pushing really hard trying to get people to use hallucinogens as their psychiatric treatment. People will go and see a doctor and the doctor will say, oh, you need to take LSD. You need to take you need to take this as a way of dealing with your trauma. So now they've turned around now that the war on drugs was a failure. Now they're pushing drug culture once again. You know, I mean, it's like no matter what, they they're trying to control the population. They're trying to stabilize their system. And they'll use whatever means to do it. And they don't really care about our well-being. That's the important thing to remember about all of this. Yeah, well, for sure. Uh, so, sorry, did I interrupt you? Okay. Well, as Talon said during his report to the 18th Party Congress, he said, it's far be it from me to teach the capitalist uh, morality, morality to people who don't understand the meaning of the word morality. Capitalism has never, ever been opposed to what we will call using things which destroy people's lives. Perfectly good example is Britain, which actually captured Hong Kong and waged three opium wars against China to get the Chinese people to actually become drug addicts. By the time of revolution in 1949, literally tens of millions of Chinese people had been rendered useless through the use use of opium and it's to the credit of the of the new communist government that they got rid of it within a period of four to four four to five years through education propaganda punishment uh, and 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 just looking after people pe people who who were sick and giving them alternative means of livelihood that's the most, most important one capitalism is not opposed to drugs whenever I mean, it, it doesn't think of very long term. It thinks of how it can make it make a fast buck. They waged a war against the progressive government in, in Af Afghanistan. 
and displayed weapons to the freedom fighters. The Mujahideen, whom they described as terrorists now, they came to the White House, had a far-side chat with President Reagan, and Reagan compared them to the founding fathers of America. Might as well be, because the founding fathers also had a dark side to them. They were all slave owners without exception, every one of them. Uh, you know, there was somebody who has been turned into an icon, George Washington. Go and visit his state, it's not very far from, from Washington. And you can see how many slaves he, he, his, his, his estate had. They were, including Thomas Jefferson, the radic radical of them, they all were slaveholders. They're not against it. They, they, they can use opium. And when they waged the war against, against the progressive regime in Afghanistan, they supplied weapons worth literally hundreds of, uh, sorry, worth billions and billions of billions of, of dollars. How did, how did the Mujahideen pay for them? By drug trade. And the people who got rid of eventually uh, of this drug trade, either were initially the progressive regime or subsequently after the deep defeat of the American forces after 20 years of waging war against Afghanistan, is the present fundamentalist Taliban regime, which has reduced the production of drugs during American occupation and British occupation, the drugs were being cultivated on an extensive scale, although, of course, they made the pretense of destroying poppy crop here, here and there. Wherever they can make money, they will make. And if it can be done with drugs, they will do. If it can be done with armaments, they will, they will do. If it can be done any other way, they, they, they would do. As, as, as Marx citing somebody else said in one of his footnotes, at 5% capitalism is interested, 5% profit. At 10% it's eager. And then he keeps on repeating at his, at 100% is not a crime it will not commit. And the, the drug industry is worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And do you think that money is processed by owners of corner shops? No, it's processed by big banks. The people who are big, you know, leaders of this industry are sitting in air-conditioned offices with three-piece suits, but that's not very popular in America, with nice pairs of designer jeans and, 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 and shirts, etc. And they don't go to jail. The people who go to jail are the little guys who are standing around a street corner to distribute. You've got to have a distribution system. If you can't have it legally, you'll have to have it illegally. So they employ hundreds of thousands of people who peddle drugs. They get caught and that gives the, the prison complex a, a boost because they can be put, put behind bars. And Caleb has rightly pointed out, the drug culture was promoted to wean away from revolutionary politics. Everybody can take, take a bit of drug. Everybody can go and jive around a dance, dancing, dancing floor and come home and they think they made a revolution. Even the big, well-known pop groups in America, when they actually bring some radical songs, it's about drugs and guns. It's not about overthrowing the bourgeoisie, because if they were using their talent for the purpose of teaching the working class to fight for their own interests, these 
groups will be disbanded in no time or carted off to the prison industrial complex. Thanks. Both of you have touched on something that I want to just come back to and, and emphasize a highlight, if you like. This role of the prison and the justice system in victim blaming, right? When you have a minority, and of course, as imperialism progresses, the the interest in for who it, I'm getting my words muddled up. The people in whose interests it, it maintains power are becoming fewer and fewer, right? In terms of an absolute ruling class that that really benefits from the continued rule of this, you know, as Paul said, totally moribund system, which is messing up the lives and the minds of everybody, and particularly our young people, on such an industrial scale. You know, in order to do that, you have to create narratives. You have to create storylines that justify the status quo. And you have to create storylines that justify very violently holding down the poorest sections of the population. Yeah. So having a story that says these people are the problem in society and we have to press down on them, otherwise they threaten everybody else's peace and security, um, is very much helped by finding ways to criminalize them and look them up and maintain this, oh, well, look, they're all in prison because they're bad people, they keep doing things wrong, right? Um, but. Um, before I come to you, Paul, I just want to give a, a small illustrative story of what I'm talking about. Uh, I had a good comrade for a while who had spent time in prison, and he talked about his experience there that most of the inmates that he was he was mixing with were either illiterate or had come out of the care system. I.e., we're talking about the people on the very, very poorest section of society making up the majority of the prison population. So, Hapal, I wonder if you could just comment on that before we move on. Really, you've said everything that needs to be said. And interesting, though, that that topic is we're moving somewhat away from the question of state, which is very important to discuss. Uh, and then you'll run out of time and both you and Caleb would want to run away because you've got other, other duties. We need to understand what the lower stage of communism is and what the state is during that and what the higher stage of communism is and what is the difference and what is the economic basis for the withering away of, of the state. I think we, we must discuss it. And if I can just kickstart it by saying in the lower stage of communism, what happens is that the means of production, distribution and exchange are made the brought under the ownership of the whole of society. It is no longer possible to use them to exploit other, other people. And exploitation of one person by another is, is, is eliminated. And the payment for work that you get is according to the work you put in. You know, everybody doesn't get the same amount of payment. It depends on the quantity and quality of life of work you put in according to which you will get uh, paid. And you won't get the return, as LaSalle used to say, you know, the, you, know you, you, you would get paid for whatever you've done and everything will be given to you. No, certain portion has to be reserved as a fund for in development of production. Certain portion has to be reserved for emergencies, you know, famines, that's disasters. Certain portion has to be reserved for social provision, houses, schools, you know, health system, and, 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 and all the rest of it. Old people who have to be looked after, or the very young who cannot work. 
And then after all that has been done, distribution will take place according to the work performed. Now, that is an injustice that is not cured in the first stage. What the first stage does is cures the injustice of the private ownership of the means of production. It is no longer possible to own them privately. It's no longer possible to use them to exploit, exploit other people. But the other injustice, where you get the same money for the same amount of work, is also an injustice, as Lenin says. One person is stronger than the other. One, has, one is unmarried, and the other one is married. One has more children, and the other one has less. Fewer, fewer, fewer children, but the same amount of money, therefore makes one person richer than, than the other. But that is an, an injustice that cannot be helped because socialism does not drop from the heavens. It doesn't grow of its own accord on its own soil. It emerges from capitalism and emerging from capitalism, it is stamped with the birthmarks of, of capitalism. It cannot be got rid of overnight. You cannot ask people who have emerged from capitalist exploitation to be actually given uh, payment according to need because they calculate, as Lennon says, with the cool heartedness of a Shylock as to who is getting worst more than others. Is someone getting more than, than, than me? Is he working one hour less than me? And all the rest of it. So in order to be able to regulate that, you need a state. It's a state which is a working class state, but which administers bourgeois right. To that extent, it's a bourgeois state, which because to have any right, you have to have a measure, and that measure is useless unless it's enforced, and you need that state to do that. A state that enforces a bourgeois right is a bourgeois state in the scientific terms, although it is a state of the proletariat, if you like. And it's only once uh, productive capacity has increased to a point where the products of society, what that society needs for consumption, free, flow, free, flow, flow freely and abundantly, and there's no shortage of anything. When people have brought up, new generations have come up who have been reared in the in the culture of looking after other people rather than not, not number one. And when education has increased, when the distinctions between when the division of labor has been got rid of, when the distinction between mental and physical labor has been got rid of, only then can the society actually leave the horizon of the dictator of the proletariat and not abolish the proletarian state, but the proletarian state begins to wither, wither away, i.e. It, its functions are taken away from it. It no longer has one after the other, function to perform, so it withers of itself. But the opportunists throughout the period of the, the Second International applied the withering away of the state to actually the relationship of the revolution to the bourgeois state. The bourgeois state will become more and more democratic and wither away. It doesn't wither away. The whole function of revolution is to smash the bourgeois state. And Marx and Engels used in German expressions which I cannot, cannot remember, but they really convey the meaning of what it means to smash up the bourgeois state, to destroy it, to reduce it to, 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 to smithereens. 
So the relationship of proletarian revolution to the bourgeois state is that it has to smash it. That is the target, tar target of the revolution. That is what the revolution aims at. And the proletarian state, on the other hand, is not abolished. It withers away. It withers away because it's created the right conditions for the next stage of, of the humanities uh, 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 march from primitive communism to the higher stage of communism. So it, it is something that we have to keep, keep in mind. We, we will be called utopians. You know, state can never be abolished. State is given by, by the almighty. You know, it's an idea which has been transplanted from German philosophy into political science, where the state is just above discussion. It's always been there, it will always be there. It's like my market socialist will tell you, market means efficiency. Read state and revolution and Lenin will tell you how there's scope for unlimited increase in productivity of labor under the condition of capitalism. Because capitalism actually far from, at a certain stage, promoting efficiency, it promotes inefficiency. It stands in the way of the development of the productive forces. Even in the modern newspapers, you can find items every day where actually big corporations are standing in the way of further development. And in certain areas, development is done by individuals who then, of course, start their own companies. They become monopolists as well. You know, this is how Facebook started. That's how Bill Gates's company started. And they, they can branch out and they become monop monop monopolies themselves. But the main thing is that they actually suppress invention. There are hundreds of inventions that could be put to the use of society, but the big corporations buy them and pigeonhole them. They don't even use them themselves, unless of course, one of their competitors comes upon the same idea and starts using them, they'll bring, then they'll bring, bring them out. Lenin gives examples of, of, of that in his imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. But we can, if we pass the financial press, serious financial press, not the sun and the mail, but you can read in the Financial Times these reports as to how progress is actually being hindered by large corporations. Caleb. Sure. Well, I mean, one thing that was very key for me uh, to learn in my political development was that the basis for the withering away of the state in the higher stage of communism is the vast abundance created by communism, right? That the problem with capitalism is that it holds back uh, productivity because of the problem of overproduction. The more efficient production gets under capitalism, the poorer everyone gets. Um, socialism liberates the means of production from their irrational artificial restraints of the profit system. And then it allows the basis for a huge amount of abundance to be created. And with a huge amount of abundance uh, existing in society, inequality fades away because why hoard for yourself? If there's enough for everybody, there's no need to, to hoard things. Um, and the need to regulate who gets what and how much everyone has in a society where there's just so much, people can just take what they need. And technology has advanced that so little human labor is necessary. And I think the words that Marx uses in the critique of the Goethe program, he says, labor becomes life's prime want not a necessity, meaning people only work because they feel like it to not be bored. You know, it's not necessary. Human labor becomes no longer a necessity. Uh, at that point, the need for a coercive state uh, to say, well, this is your property, this is your property, it, it doesn't exist anymore. 
and that uh, that that really the struggle of human history, you know, we go from higher, you know, from mode of production to mode of production, from, you know, primitive communism to, to slavery, to feudalism, you know, to capitalism and eventually to socialism. We're getting to a higher level of abundance at each stage. Right. And that uh, the basis of inequality uh, the basis of the need for an oppressive state, uh, the basis of all of that is is scarcity and it's overcoming scarcity um, that really kind of uh, defines the struggle of humanity. And that's when, you know, the Communist Manifesto and I believe I, I think it's actually uh, socialism, utopian and scientific Engels talks about, you know, man becoming the lord over nature free. Right. And that um, in in the role of uh, labor and the transition from ape to man, Engels says that that's what kind of defines humanity is that other species only interact with their environment. But human beings make the environment serve them. Right. And that we master our environment and that we're constantly reinventing our ability to master our environment and that the higher stage of communism, the, the ultimate triumph of communism is the ultimate mastering of our environment to the point uh, that we have achieved such an abundance in our mastering of the environment and our technological advancement uh, that there's no need for any state or any social hierarchies. And we've overcome uh, kind of the, the restraints and, and the restraints on humanity that have been imposed by scarcity. And that was an important development because I think that it, especially when people who kind of glorify the cultural revolution in China, they feel like the higher stage of communism can be created by willing it. Right. You know, it's like, you know, it's like we're just going to will, you know, we're going to we're going to force everyone to, to be good people and, and live in a revolutionary communist way. And after a few generations, they'll just be so used to it. Then we'll have communism. Well, no, there's an economic basis to this. And that kind of understanding that was a very big breakthrough for me in, in kind of getting to understand historical materialism. So I want to make that point. Absolutely. And I think you've beautifully summed up, actually, Caleb, the, the vision of the future that communism holds out to people, that we are aiming not for collective poverty, but for collective prosperity, for abundance, as you say, for a really civilised, decent life for everybody on the planet. And that it's within our grasp. Right. That's that's the aim of socialism and of the socialist revolution is to lay the lay the foundation for that progress to finally be allowed to happen. We have the technology, but we don't have the right social setup to facilitate that. We need to create that. That's what the socialist revolution is for. Um, I think that summed that up beautifully. Harpal, before we close, do you want to say a last word? Well, I, I, I think the, the, the biggest distortion these days is not pe people want collectivization and want to collectivize poverty. But the biggest distortion comes about is that Capitalism is more efficient than so socialism. So we need the market in order to be able to have efficiency and make people's lives better. It doesn't make lives better. The encroachment of the market produces commodity production. It reintroduces exploitation of, of one human being by, by another. It produces multi-millionaires, billionaires on one side and poor people on the other. It also produces recurrent, regular crisis of overproduction. Over, over and we've got to fight against that. We've got to actually instill into people the essence of Marxian economics, that it is only with the abolition of capitalism can productivity be actually increased on an unheard of scale. You only have to, have to, have to read Engels' anti-during, apart from other works, that's a work that every communist should read because 
it sums up the entire Marxist philosophy, political economy, and 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 and, and, and every other 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 part of it. I mean, it's only with the ending of exploitation that finally human beings would actually break the umbilical cord that binds them that binds them to animality. Uh, human beings will become human beings and free only to the extent that the exploitation is 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 ended and where actually people can begin to work for for a society yes it is not possible to achieve socialism it is not possible to achieve the higher stage of communism without an economic base without increasing production without having the technical mean means to do that to my mind nothing better has been produced up to now by humanity than Soviet socialism. And since most of it took place after the death of Lenin under Stalin, it is Stalin to whom this credit should be given instead of joining average idiot, whether he is an idiot from the ruling class or from the working class, who knows nothing about Stalin, who knows nothing about the Soviet economy, and poses to be an expert and pronounces how horrible Stalin was. I meet some of these people and say, what do you know about Stalin? Oh, he killed so many people. I said, what's your proof for it? I tell you that it's imperialism that's killing millions of people, and I can get, get proof of that. Tell, tell me. Uh, and then he says, Stalin killed millions of people. I said, I don't think he killed any anybody. But no doubt the Soviet system did kill people, because that is what class struggle is. Class struggle is not a walk in Central Park. Class struggle is a real thing where each side is trying to impose its will on, on the other. And what could be more authoritarian than a revolution where one side is trying to impose its will on another by force of arms and bayonets and everything. Authoritarian means if there ever were, as, as Engel said in his controversy with, with the anarchists, his little pamphlet, Bakuninus at work is, is, is worth reading. So it's extremely important for us to actually push back against. I know we are in a minority because most of the socialists have deserted to our side. They become market socialists, you know, because their, their view is China's made great progress under the market. But I put it to you, China made tremendous progress between its liberation in 1949 and 78. Mao Zedong dies in 76. He's a much demonized character. You can argue with some of the things that he said, but on the other hand, to the extent he defended the ownership of the means of production, distribution, and exchange by the working class, and he actually fought against those who wanted to go along the line that came after his death, I, I am a supporter of Mao Zedong, even if it's not very, very, very popular. I've never sought popularity. I support them, not because everything they said, as well as the Cultural Revolution was concerned, I think that that was his resort to overcome people in the party who were taking, according to him, the, him the cap capitalist road. I would rather it would have taken place the way it was done in the Soviet Union, where Stalin never lost the support of the majority of the, of the, of the party. Mao Zedong at some time had, had, had lost that. He had tremendous prestige, and because he had that prestige, he could la launch, launch the cultural, cultural revolution. 
but there are certain things in economics that I don't agree with, like agriculture is more important than industry. Having said that agriculture is more important, the practice during the, all those years, right up to 1978, is giving preference to heavy industry and within that to metallurgical and tool building industry. Without that, China would not have made progress. And as a bourgeois economist, Will Hutton said, all that was built during Mao's time. And if they hadn't been built, there wouldn't be much for, for the reformists to reform. It was only reformed because so much had, had been built. I think we have to take an extremely wide ranging view of what, what happened in China, what happened in the Soviet, Soviet Union. We should treasure those things that they did for society. If there are any mistakes made, we should pinpoint rather than make general statements, or oh, they made mistakes. Well, you know, that statement is made on the basis to err is human. Yes, we all make mistakes, so we are all sinners. That's not good enough. Mistakes, mistakes have to be pointed out. What exactly were the mistakes made and how, how they played into it? No doubt there were excesses in the Cultural Revolution, which was used then by the reformists to turn people against, against, against those, those reforms and mobilize very quickly. You know, there was, for example, a cult against the intellectuals. Not all intellectuals were counter-revolutionary and one had to be more discriminatory about that. And of course, all of them were mobilized by Deng Xiaoping and others very quickly turned into market reformists. And I personally am of the opinion China would have made even greater progress if it had carried, carried along the path of planned production in the interest of, 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 of its people rather than relying on export-oriented economy and import of capital on a vast scale. Thanks, Paul. We should probably leave that there for today. Yep.